Hey guys and welcome to the Dragosaurus Podcast. I am your host Julie V. Steens and this is a very quick one because I am on my way to work and I think I'm going to be late catching the bus. <laughs> anyway, uh, just to say a quick introduction here that I am joined by the one and only Laura McAllister. So here and I talk about, you know, her career playing for Wales, playing uh, for Cardiff City, the Millwall Lionesses. You know, she's also the first former or even current female footballer to come on my show. But he also talked about the academic career of her pursuits, you know, being the board members of hopefully the UEFA and the FAW and a lot more. So without further ado, we're going to jump straight into it. This is me and Lauren McAllister on the Dragon's Race Podcast. gentlemen I, I mean I'm very glad to say this I finally got uh, whether it's a current or a former uh, female footballer to come on and talk about football but I'm really humble and honoured that uh, I'm in the presence of Professor Laura McAllister to come and talk about football I, I, I only saw you multiple times on uh, the Football Nation talking about football and I thought I, I need to get you on <laughs> Just to talk about football. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. I'm always keen to talk about football. So you'll always you'll always get me to do that. <laughs> so let's get, let's get down to it. So I really want to talk about the at first, you know, as a player, because I know you. Everyone knows you as a professor. You know, a very well educated person who's 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 been there and done that. You're on board members and everything. I mean, you're. <laughs> I mean, you're you're the person who's, who's who's just been there and done that. Who's doing it now? But as a footballer. I mean, uh, you currently you played currently you played for uh, uh, Millwall uh, Lionesses, and obviously the, the, there was one that I really struggled with. It was uh, it said Inter Cardiff, then it said Cardiff City. Um, ah, yeah, yeah. So. Well, actually, it was the same club, and it still is the same club, which is Cardiff City Ladies. And when I, I, I you're right, you know, when I went to university in London, I played f- uh, for a while with Millwall. And then as soon as I came home to Cardiff and I started doing my PhD at Cardiff University, I joined Cardiff City Ladies. And all of those names that you'll see were the club's kind of journey through developing itself. So for a while we were called Inter Cardiff, which was part of the men's setup. uh, And they played up at um, Kyra, you know, near Ely. And then we were Cardiff County for a while where we had sponsorship from another club. And then uh, we we went back to being Cardiff City, and you know we were the original Cardiff City ladies before the men's setup, professional setup, took on a women's team. So it was the same club in effect, and I, I played for them all through my career. Um, it, when I moved to Liverpool for work, I, I trained for a while with Everton, um, and well, hey, you know, I kind hey. of yeah, I thought a bit about uh, moving, but you know my heart was with Cardiff, and as it happened. Cardiff City were then promoted to the Premier League. So I was able to still play in the Premier League, but with Cardiff. So, yeah, I mean, I was a one-club person, really, you know, almost overwhelmingly all my career. So with, with that in mind, you, it was 94 to 98 that uh, you managed to get in 24 caps playing for Wales. And there was, uh, uh, looking into the research and everything, uh, so uh, correct me if I'm wrong, so there was one of, there were, you were part of three, uh, individuals that went up to uh, Alan Evans, uh, I think his name was, and to say, look, we need a women's 
Wales women's football team going on. So let, let's get one going. So uh, I just wanted to know at first, how did the Wales women's come about? And, and also, what was it like to be around talking to Alan Evans? Because he was responsible for a lot of things, especially starting up uh, trying to get the League of Wales started as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you, you're, you're right with that most of that story. I mean, I played from 94 to 2001, actually. Right. And I had 24 caps. The reason that's important, the dates, is that I played every game for Wales in that period, literally every game. You know, I played every friendly and every competitive game, and I only had 24 caps, which tells you kind of where the women's game was then compared to where it is now, because obviously we were only playing, you know, in competitive games, hardly any friendlies, because there wasn't an infrastructure around developing the game. Um, but, but having said all of that, you know, if it hadn't been for Alan Evans, who was the general secretary of the FAW at the time, and responded to our request for the FAW to get more involved, we, we wouldn't have made that really important first step to develop in the national team. Because when I came back from university and joined Cardiff City, I met a lot of players who were a bit older than me, and I asked them about the national team and what had happened. And it turned out that they'd almost given up asking the uh, national governing body for support for the women's game because they hadn't had any support forthcoming before. And I think because they felt so negative about that, they'd formed their own structure for Welsh women's football. So they, they organised the international team themselves. They had a manager, they had kits, they had, um, you know, uh, travel and all the rest of it. But they funded it themselves, completely organic through female players. Um, and so a lot of players that I played with, people like Karen Jones, was a goalkeeper, Michelle Adams, Wendy Riley, Leslie Judd. Um, these girls had had Welsh caps, but they weren't authorised or supported by the FAW, the governing body themselves. And, and not just that, but they were actually paying for everything themselves, you know, literally everything. And that struck me as being unfair and wrong. You know, why should the women's game not have any status within the national governing body? You know, we're only talking about, you know, 30 years ago. Is it 30 years? Yeah, I can't remember now. Yeah, well, you know, less than 30 years ago. And, and women's football was effectively ignored by the governing body. So I, I, you know, I certainly didn't have the most important role in this. The more important roles were the ones conducted by the girls who went before me. But because I've kind of got a political mindset and I thought this just isn't fair, let's lobby to change this. I think it gave them a bit more encouragement that something could change. So Karen and Michelle and I went to see Alan Evans. We kind of fired off a letter to him and said, look, you know, we want to come and meet you and explain to you why the women's game deserves more attention from you as a governing body. And, and I think the girls expected it to be ignored because everything had been ignored up until that point. But in fairness to Alan, he replied pretty quickly and said, yeah, come and see me. I'm not promising anything. Come and have a chat. And I think when we went into his offices in Westgate Street, you know, where the FAW used to be, we weren't very um, optimistic about what was likely to happen. And I think he was probably quite sceptical about how good the structure was for the women's game. But, but in fairness, he listened to us. Um, we talked to him about, you know, the standard and the, the stature of clubs like Cardiff City. And he said, OK, well, I'm going to come and watch a game. And true to his word, he did come and watch one of the games not long after that. Um, and I think the fairest way of describing it is to say he was completely hooked. You know, from there on in, he went to virtually all the Cardiff City games. 
He decided to uh, support a structure for the women's game. He entered us into a World Cup qualifying tournament. He provided kit. I mean, look, you know, it wasn't perfect. Don't get me wrong. You know, the kit was the men's old kit, which was too big for the, the women. Um, the travel arrangements weren't as, you know, plush and luxurious as they are now. But it was the first step. And, you know, as I say to the players now, everybody's got to make a first step in a journey to, to advance as far as we have done. And without Alan Evans and his kind of instinctive commitment to, to support the women's game, I don't think, you know, we would be in a position now where we have a really excellent manager and Gemma Granger and we're looking to qualify for the next World Cup. You know, none of this would have happened if, if we hadn't been able to persuade the FAW to come on board back in 1993 and 94. How important was Alan Evans for, for, for Welsh football in, in general? Because, I mean, he was, like I said, he was one of the ones that started the League of Wales. You know, he was the one that proposed to it and everything. And with, without the League of Wales, there wouldn't have been pro- probably an international team because I think he was getting to the point where FIFA, maybe UEFA would acknowledge and saying, wait a minute, you haven't got a national league. Where is that? And yeah. obviously now you're saying that's not about Alan Evans, you know, probably helping you kick, get that ball rolling and everything. So how important... Was he to yeah, Welsh football? Very, imp- very, very important. I think he's been completely undervalued as an um, instigator of national success for us in football. Um, every journey, you know, every journey has its origins, as I said. And, you know, when you look at our success in 2016 at the Euros and even, you know, it's been a, it's been a more disappointing tournament for sure this time, but, but even qualifying for the 2021 Euros, 2020 Euros, as they call it, getting out of the group, you know, having a couple of great results in the qualifiers, all of that, you've got to trace back to a structure for the game. And you're right to say that there is always a risk to Wales as a nation or there would have always been a risk to Wales as a nation without a national league of our own. Um, equally, the women's game owes a massive debt to Alan Evans because not only did he respond to our request to get involved in uh, uh, developing the game and entering us into a qualifying tournament, but, but he also raised the profile of the game. He spoke out in its favour. Um, he was a critic as well, don't get me wrong. And in many respects, you know, Alan, Alan was always an awkward character. I mean, and I don't, you know, we, we lost Alan, what, you know, eight or 10 years ago now. But I always liked him a lot. But he was controversial as well, mainly because he wasn't frightened to speak his mind. You know, if he thought something needed to be done, then he would just go in and do it. And of course, sometimes that gets people's backs up along the way. But always, and I can really, I can say this with some authority and some absolute conviction, he, he always did things that were in the interests of Welsh football that was never really about him or a partial perspective or an area association perspective or club perspective it was always about the national picture and I've never met anybody who was as politically savvy about football as him in Wales you know who knew how to uh, preempt any challenges to what we were doing from UEFA or FIFA or anybody who really cared as much as him about the game um, and, that, and that's what I mean by him being undervalued or under-recognised. How instrumental Alan was in getting us to where we now are for the women and the men's game. Um, and, you know, people like Phil Stead, good friend of mine who's written, you know, the history of the, the Welsh game. I mean, Phil picks up on quite a few 
areas where without Ireland's influence, I think we'd be in a much more vulnerable position as a nation now, as a football nation. Is there anything that honours uh, his his legacy in any way? Is there like a plaque or uh, like a statue somewhere? That's a good question. I, I've got a feeling one of the cups was named after Arlen Evans in the women's game, but I'd have to check on that. But I got a feeling they did name one of the cup tournaments after him. But But whatever, you know, whatever the case is, I don't think he's been acknowledged fully as somebody who is a real architect of mm. the growth of the women's game. And you talk to ex-players, you know, my generation, even younger ones, you know, like Jess Fishlock and Tash and Tash Harding and co. And they, because, because they have a connection with our generation of players, you know, because they played, they came into the setup when we were all, you know, on our, in our last years of playing and they were young kids. Um, but because they know us and they, they heard the stories about what happened and they saw Alan Evans watching games on the sidelines, they know who he was as well, you know, and they know how much he did to get us from A to B. Um, and, and even though we've got a long way to travel beyond where we are now, I think that was the biggest step anybody could make. Because I, I genuinely believe that if we hadn't entered a national international team for the women into a FIFA or UEFA tournament in the 1990s, we would have been left behind as a generation of, of female footballers. And, and I know now from my work with UEFA, it's much harder now to launch a women's team and try and rise up the rankings because you're seeded at the bottom of every qualifying group. You know, you have to enter all the prelim rounds in the Champions League with your club sides and so on. So if we hadn't entered then, I think we there's no way in the world that we'd have the likes of Sophie Ingle playing Champions League football, you know, Jess playing in the States, Tash, Tash um, uh, has James out in the US as well. You know, without that stru structure and setup, there's no way these girls would have been as successful as they have been. Just going quickly on to, because I know your, your um, field has always been in the politics area and everything and just trying to mix football in together. I mean... Uh, I, I want to know about this uh, from your expertise and everything. So it's very good to best opportunity to ask you this. Um, so in today's current football, you know, where we, we've got the Black Lives Matter, we've got um, support and standing up for people who are, who are gay and uh, in the sports and everything like that. But there, yeah. seems, there seems to be this divide where the people are um, against it, not against the, the subject matters, but against the always try to use the quote unquote politics and football kind of attitudes where we don't want that politics in football. Why do you think uh, people don't want that politics in football? Is that because they just, it, it, because pip, uh, football has always been a symbol of a getaway vehicle where, you know, we just want to forget things and just worry about that. So what do you think that is? Yeah. I mean, I, I can understand why some people would argue I want to go to a match just to enjoy it. And I don't want to have any political debates or disagreements with other fans or with colleagues or even with the setup of the team. But I think it's a little bit naive because, you know, uh, football is about power and influence and strategy. And all of those things are political things. Um, if you just accept the fact that there is still ongoing racism and sexism and homophobia in football then it's right and proper that players and fans have a voice to argue against that so I kind of feel that I can see where they might be coming from but I don't agree with the perspective that football should be kept a kind of 
politics-free zone. I just think that's unrealistic and a little bit naive because things don't happen like that in, in real life. And, you know, I know because obviously I've been involved with UEFA now and, and fought a, a, an election recently to be elected to FIFA unsuccessfully. But nevertheless, I learned a lot about the politics of how things operate. And ultimately, organisations, whether they're in sport or in politics themselves or in business or in education, are all about power and where money goes and where resources go. And so you can't avoid politics in football. Um, and, and in a way, I don't think you, sh you should even try, because for me, it's really important that um, football footballers have a voice. I mean, we've seen, you know, we're in the week where England would play in a semi-final. We've seen some of those England players speak out against racism and against poverty and against homophobia. And I think that's great, you know, ju just like it's so important that our players in the Welsh national team have a political contribution to make as well. That's what makes them good role models, I think. And it's just outdated and naive to say that, you know, politics and sport don't mix. They, there's more politics in football, believe me, than there is in politics itself, as, as I've learned, you know, contesting elections. But the only way you get an influence is by embracing that and being part of it. So, yeah, I, I don't see any way that that's, that's going to change. And I, I wouldn't want it to, to be honest. Yeah. No, I fully, fully agree with you. It's just, um, I, I remember going back a few months ago when the, the taking the knee was happening and everything and uh, and someone, uh, I won't say who, but um, said that, oh, why are they taking the knee? It's, it's pointless, Is everything. And I just turned around and said, I said, look at some of those uh, black players out there. Do you, th no, wait a minute. He said, um, this person said that, oh, I don't want to come to the, a football game with uh, politics being talked about. And I says, look at some yeah. of those black players out there do you think they want to come to a bloody football game being called yeah. every n-word under the sun yeah. do, do you think they want yeah. to do that and they were like well well that's not the point that is the point if you don't like doing that yeah yeah <laughs> and, and i think we've just got to be realistic haven't we about the climate in which some players you know have to play and mm. uh, the same goes for for some female players you know who are routinely abused on social media and in some countries, you know, physically abused as well. And, you know, we've we've had some horrific cases of sexual abuse of female players in uh, various parts of the world. So whilst we've still got work to do, serious work and problems in that area, then politics is football and football is politics. And personally, I don't have a problem with that. I think we just have to work around it. Yeah. And, and the thing is as well, even if you look at any um, any rivalry, any sports rivalry, there's, there's always something political about it. I mean, you look at the Celtic and Rangers game, there's something political about that. There's Cardiff and Swansea. There's something political about <laughs> that rivalry anyway. It's just that. Yeah, exactly. And, and the thing is as well, it's like um, my little sister, I mean, she's she's only 11, 11 or 12, and she's just yeah. been promoted to the under-14s of the FAW training. Uh, oh, brilliant. Yeah, great stuff. Uh, and I can be more happy. The only thing that... I, um, I, I only take notice of my, my little sisters that if she keeps doing well, then maybe she will follow in the steps of like yourselves or Natasha yeah. and, all them that and be Great. the best of the best. And I said, who do you want to play for? She went, oh, I want to play for Everton and Wales. And I'm thinking, oh, here we go. Like, that's it. <laughs> yeah. been, she's been well influenced. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Li I mean, literally. And, and the thing is as well, she um, she's always, and for, for an 11 year old, her attitude is always, I'll let my football do the talking on the pitch. And I'm thinking, oh, oh. Her, yeah. and I'm thinking, oh, I think her self-discipline, though, it needs to be a bit adjusted because I think it gets yeah. to her. But uh, yeah. no, I couldn't be more proud. But 
but it's, it's that opportunity for for you guys, you know, for now just to try and make the the women's football better, and hopefully for someone like my little sister who could play first team. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and that's the good thing about the women's game is that you know if you talk to the players now, you know the players like Helen Ward and who are reaching the end of their playing careers. They all want to do something to develop the game. You know, they all want to get involved in coaching or in the governance of the game. And I, I'm definitely encouraging them to, to get involved in the governance of the game because, you know, we don't have enough former players representing the sport. You know, and we don't have the voice of former players, particularly female players. So I'm really encouraging them to think about that as a way in, you know, and as a way in of really developing their sport because as I keep saying you know in my election campaign I fought it on being the football candidate I was up against somebody who had no background in football but was from a powerful nation and so on but actually that landed really well you know we, we got 40% of the votes in the end and nobody expected us to do as well as we did because you know I was an unknown candidate I was from Wales you know we haven't got a foothold of power like the big countries have and yet 22 of the 55 nations decided to vote for me um, and I think that tells you quite a lot about where the game is changing and where people see the need to have women who know the game speaking up for, for not just women's football, but for football generally. And I, I, I definitely reap the benefits of that in that campaign, you know, and I mean, I'm in London this week for meetings with uh, UEFA officials and all of those have kind of fallen out of my election campaign. You know, it's been uh, people being really pleased to see somebody speak out and, and want the game to succeed and they want to have women involved now in the governance of it. So we need to encourage the next generation to get involved as well. Let's go back to your, your playing career then for uh, for Wales and everything. So you've earned 24 caps, you know, playing for Wales. Um, now, Ed came on this one. I don't know how many countries that you had to play against. I don't know if there was like a variety range of countries that female you know women are playing for their countries today or whatever but what was it like to, to play be playing for Wales then and also what was the what what game stood out for you and I think it's going to be your first or last game but uh, <laughs> um, yeah well but, it's, they're all a cliche and they always everybody always says you know the first game and if I, I never scored for Wales so I can't pick a game that I scored in but um, yeah obviously my debut out in uh, Germany uh, in Bielefeld in Germany my last game was against Belarus, actually, in Haverford West, uh, which was a 3-3 draw. It was a cracking game, actually. Kind of, I think we came from behind twice to draw 3-3 with Belarus. And I'd already decided that I was probably going to retire after that game. I hadn't told the coach or, or my players. I maybe told one or two of my closest friends in the squad. But I, it was kind of getting to the point where I was struggling to juggle, you know, trying to play semi-professionally, which it was with my academic career and traveling between Liverpool and Cardiff. So I was just struggling personally with managing all of that, really. Um, so those games stand out. But, you know, obviously the first game that I was captain, um, which was a, a Bangor against the Faroe Islands, that was a big game for me personally, you know, because obviously, you know, wearing the arm, armband is a very special moment for any player, really. Um, and, and going back to your first question, you know, who did, who did we play? Well, you know, it was probably more restricted then, but but actually there were quite a lot of the countries were more advanced than, than we were, you know, in terms of the development of the game. So in our first qualifying uh, tournament, we played Germany, Croatia and Switzerland in our group. Um, and then, you know, I played countries obviously like Faroe Islands, um, Scotland, Northern Ireland, Republic of Ireland, uh, who else did I play? Belgium, 
Greece. Um, yeah, so, you know, there, there, there were a fair few countries really across the world that Austria that we were that were playing football at a decent standard at that time. But it was it was certainly developmental. And what I will say was there was a massive gap between the clubs, sorry, the teams, international teams that were right at the top of their development, you know, the likes of Germany and France and England. And then the teams like ourselves who were kind of starting off really on that journey. And it wasn't a shortage of quality. There were good players in our team, without a doubt, good as as good a player as some of the players in the current team. But we had very limited coaching. We had very limited, you know, strength and conditioning. We had very limited facility development. So as a result, I think most of us never quite fulfilled every potential we had, you know. Uh, but but that's life, you know. I mean, you could say the same about male players who played in the, you know, 40s and 50s. Um, when you're on that journey, then probably you don't get the same opportunities as you might if you're at a different stage of the journey. But I think... Nevertheless, you should be grateful to pull on the red shirt, you know, because that's something a lot of people don't get an opportunity to do. And, you know, it's it's a very unique and precious, you know, an emotional moment. Speaking of uh, emotional moments and everything, we're going to be talking about, you know, as fans of the game now, where um, there was years and years, well, years of hurt of uh, not qualifying for major tournaments, especially not getting to the final stages and everything. Um, and just to say this as well, just, just to back up what you're saying about uh, when we lost to, to Denmark just recently, uh, you know, losing 4 0 and everything. Um, oh, I, I was hurt because we lost, but I was so optimistic to think, you know what, we're going to be all right in the future. If we can get, if we keep getting through to the knockout yeah. stages and everything, then we're going to be all right. And we're going to yeah. keep developing, developing because that way then we're standing. We're going to stand uh, on shoulder to shoulders with the other countries that we were so far behind back then, you know. So yeah, uh, yeah, and, I agree. Yeah, and we're going to be all right. But the emotional <laughs> moments have been, you know, Wales twenty sixteen. I mean, we're going to have to keep going back to to that. So for you personally, I mean, did you think that Wales were going to get as fast as were? And uh, also, how did you feel when when we got to the semi-finals? Yeah, I mean, it, I think we've got to not so much draw a line under 2016 because, you know, it's, mm. it's always going to be one of the most special moments in Welsh football for all of us who were there and who watched at home. And it's not trying to diminish that, you know, but I think like in all sport, you've got to move to the next challenge. And the next challenge was obviously qualifying for the World Cup, which we didn't manage, and then qualifying for the Euros, which we did manage. And as you say, it was disappointing not to um, not to get beyond the round of 16. But, but the fact that we're disappointed is good because, you know, we're, we're being ambitious about what we want our country to do and where we want to go. And I, and I like that. You know, our strategy for developing the game is, is always driven by what challenge lies ahead. And I'd be really disappointed if we just sort of soaked up the joy of 2016 and said, right, that's it. We've done it now. We've ticked it off. You know, isn't that wonderful? It's got to be about moving forward because if you don't move forward in sport you you don't just stand still you fall back because other countries are moving forward around you so it's really important for us to have a strategy from not just the men's game but the women's game as well that moves us from where we are now to a better position and and sometimes you know you can go forward and then go back and and in some respects the women's game's probably done that a little bit um, I, but I now I get a sense now that the trajectory for the women's game, the journey for the women's game is definitely going in the right direction. I've got no doubt at all that 
Um, we've got a real chance of qualifying for the 2023 Women's World Cup in Australia, New Zealand, um, especially with the management setup we've got now, the coaching setup and the squad of players we've got. And similarly for the men, you know, look, it's not an easy group to get out of for the World Cup. But, you know, we've got a couple of, you know, chances here with the Nations League playoff as well. So in a way, we, we would now be disappointed if we didn't come close to qualifying for the Qatar World Cup which don't forget is in 18 months time because it's the December World Cup. So I think that kind of attitude is a real landmark change in Welsh football because, you know, it, it's not saying we should just be grateful for getting there once. It's saying, come on, we need to make this a regular occurrence. And, and I know people will say we're a small country. Uh, we'll only get there, you know, every other tournament. I don't see it like that. You know, I think we can look at qualifying for two out of three tournaments especially as the tournaments are being enlarged. You know, we're seeing a bigger World Cup, um, so more opportunities. You know, the Euros have been enlarged to 24 teams. So, yeah, why not? We're, we're as good as, as other countries that regularly qualify. I mean, Denmark regularly qualify. You know, we saw the Republic of Ireland do it regularly on a, you know, back, back in the 90s. So why not? You know, let, let's, be, let's be much more ambitious and aspirational about what we're trying to do. You know, I agree with on that because uh, at the same time when people say, oh, we're only a small country, and I went, yeah, but if you look back through time, for a small country, we produce some superstar players. I mean... Yeah, exactly. And it's only just now that we're cementing ourselves as regular, uh, uh, regular to be on par with England to say, hey, England, just because you've been doing it for God knows how many years, we're here now and we're going to put you to the test. I mean, it's like, um, I mean, you, it's, it's general conversations, you know, uh, uh, common conversations when you get in the pub where they say, oh, we've had Neville South or we had Mark Hughes, we had um, John Charles, Ian Rush, you know, we had all, all those players and everything. Uh, well, but then again, John Charles and, and that team got us to a final stage. Of us. But ever since after that, you know, we had superstar players that we could have done it then, but we didn't. So, uh, so it's, it, it we've always got to have that never say die attitude now where to go yeah, forward is definitely we've got the players. So let's not have this mentality of, well, we're a small country. No, 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 no. Iceland improved that in 2016s and they got a lesser, way lesser population than us. So, yeah. And now, I mean, for, I keep, I keep calling it Qatar. I don't know if it's Qatar or Qatar. I keep, yeah. Well, whatever. Yeah. It's not yeah. going to be the best World Cup for any of us, is oh, it really? No but Yeah. Having having said that, you know, um, it's 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 a it's the next World Cup that we face. So of course we want to qualify. It might not be the best experience for fans um, or for people, you know, especially gay people, you know, given the civil liberties and human rights issues there. But from a sport purely sporting perspective, our attention's got to be on qualifying for the World Cup. You know, we've got a group that we can potentially get out of. We've got the, you know, the safety net of a playoff game. Um, so why not? You know, and I'd be really disappointed. And I know everybody at the FAW would be if we weren't really, really driving, um, you know, that ambition and expecting us to get there. Same with the women's side. I mean, I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to Gemma Granger at all, the new women's manager. But her attitude is very much, you know, when we get to the World Cup, not if, you know, we're going to drive everything towards it. And when we get there, we want to perform. We won't just be there to make up the numbers. And I love that attitude. You know, that's kind of always been my attitude in sport, you know, to be aspirational, brave and confident. And even when I was playing and, you know, 
gosh, we were, you know, we were very rarely favourites in any game because we were starting off on the journey. But I never thought we were going to lose. You know, I never went into a game, even against Germany or one of the top countries, and think we're going to lose this. Because for me, that gives away an advantage to your opponents before you even kick a ball. So I said, I like that kind of bravery and, you know, a wholehearted spirit and passion that we've got in Wales. What era, you know, with all the other managers that we had in the past, what year did you think that now we should have qualified for, I don't know, the World Cup or the Euros then? What was that era for you? That should have, that should well, have been it. The, yeah, there's a few, isn't there? I mean, the Yorath years, obviously. Um, if you're talking about the men's game now, the Yorath years, um, clearly we should have got to a, a finals then. And, you know, Mark Hughes and the Russia playoff. I mean, I think, you know, gosh, we, we got the tactics wrong, didn't we, in that playoff? Um, but that, that was a good, good team. If you look at the players in that team, you know, there was real quality there all the way through the side. And I think we could have we could have performed in a major tournament with that side. So yeah, and and to be honest, if you're talking about the women's team, we should have qualified for the Euros in England next year. Um, I think that was a huge disappointment, you know, that the Jane Ludlow's team didn't get there. And I'm not blaming anybody, you know, nobody nobody knows more than me how hard it is to get over that bar. But with the players we had, and to see Northern Ireland qualify, you know, when we were clearly a better side than them, having dropped points to them out there and home, uh, was really disappointed. All credit to them because, you know, they pitched points off a better team in Wales, and that's what tournament qualification is all about. But, but you know, for me personally, those, those are illustrations of where we've fallen short, you know, and, and I think we've got to learn from them. And I hope the pain of that for the current generation of players like Jess and, and Tash and uh, Sophie Ingle will, will really register because they're desperate to qualify and they'll make sure they learn from that pain and make sure it generates them forward for the next qualifiers. Yeah. Uh, funny enough, I was, I was talking to my sister about it and, uh, and she, we were talking about um, the, the female teams. Uh, this is going back a few weeks ago now. And we were having a look at some of the players and um, you know how it's like all the, in the men's team you have, I, I don't know if it, Bale, Ramsey, and let's say Joe Allen. I, I, I don't know if it, it would be Joe Allen if people would put him there, but that's the, the big three, as they say, the, the big main three. And then yeah. and Jamie, uh, my little sister, Jamie, would just turn around and go, yeah, but then Natasha Harding, Sophie Ingo, and Jess Fishlock are the big three, the yeah. big faces yeah. for, for them. And, yeah. you know, and fair play to, to those three. And uh, I'm not uh, trying to knock down anyone else, uh, any other female players, um, but... You know, they're just the, the beacon of hope for other female players as well, just to say, look, we can do it. You can as well. And, um, yeah, and, sure. and I, I just I just hope one day if I get to meet one of them, my little sister says, like, right, you tell her, you, you tell my little sister what to, what to do because uh, she's in a world yeah. of her own. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, but where, where's the next? So the, the World Cup, I say, is for the female ones. Where's that going to be held then? Is that in... That, yeah, that's held in Australia, New Zealand in 2023. So the qualifiers uh, start now in September. Uh, we're in a group that we can get out of. You know, this, this, we're in with France, so they're, they're obviously going to be favourites. But there's other countries, you know, there, um, like, like uh, Slovenia and, and Greece that we can beat. So, yeah, I'm kind of quietly confident that this will be our chance. Um, disappointing not to get to the Euros in England next year because obviously the Euros will be a big, big tournament, bearing in mind how far England have developed the game for women. 
Um, but, you know, nevertheless, we, we'll go onwards and upwards now and we need to really focus on the, the World Cup and, you know, unite around the new manager, make sure the players like, like Jess Fishlock and probably Tash and Sophie might only have one, one or two more qualifying tournaments in them, you know, so we've got to give them every opportunity now to bring on the next generation of players. Yeah, so I feel optimistic, you know, I think we're in a good place, we, we're developing the grassroots of the game properly. We're getting young girls playing football. My, you know, my two girls play. And I think it's great that, you know, they're getting opportunities that we didn't have when we were girls. Um, and, and that can only benefit the game in the longer term. Going on to, you know, how you've been running, what was it, the uh, was it the, the rep for the FIFA and UEFA Council? Yeah. So can you, could you explain, FIFA I was going to say, could you explain that more to, to people who, who don't know what was you running for? Because uh, I only I only know majority of it. So can you um, probably yeah, educate? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, so I was standing for an election uh, for a place on FIFA Council that was designated for women only because they haven't got enough representation of women. Uh, and that was an election from UEFA. So the only the UEFA nations could vote. So I would have been the representative of the UEFA nations on FIFA. So 55 nations um, and it was a, a straight fight between myself and a woman called uh, Evelina Crystalline, who's from uh, Italy. Um, and, uh, you know, so we went head to head in the Congress in Montreux in Switzerland in April. And, and she had 33 votes. I had 22. So I was six, six votes short, short of winning, um, which was, as I said earlier, you know, more than people expected us to get because the politics of elections is really you know, is very um, delicate, let's say, in football. And people vote with other countries, a bit like the Eurovision Song Contest. Oh, you know? yeah. So so people were expecting me as a new candidate not to get more than maybe eight or ten votes. So I think by fighting the election on the basis of me being a football candidate with a voice for football women registered really well. And I think that was that was really pleasing because it's paved the way, hopefully, for me to stand again and to have a bigger role within UEFA now and then hopefully in the future stand and, and win the election. I mean, you know, you can never guarantee that in anything, but I'll give it my best shot because, you know, I think it's important that women's voices are heard in the top echelons of power. And that's why, you know, I'm prepared to kind of have another go at it. I didn't expect to win this time, but if anything, I didn't expect to do as well as we did do, but I'm delighted that we did. So, yeah, we'll, we'll try again. Yeah, and going into it more, uh, probably more confidently now and think, wait a minute, if I can get those 22 countries, then I can get the extra maybe six or more. Um, Yeah, exactly. So with that in mind, so currently, what are you doing at this moment in time? Are you still, you know, doing lectures at the probably Cardiff universities? Are you, um, so what are you doing in general? Yeah, so so I'm still, my main academic job, obviously teaching and researching at the Wales Governance Centre at Cardiff University. So I work a lot with the, Senev and with the Welsh government around political themes. That's my main job. Uh, I still, I'm still involved with the FAW. I, I'm on the board of the FAW Trust that looks after the development of the game. Um, and I'm deputy chair of UEFA's Women's Football Committee, which obviously develops strategy around the women's game. Um, so yeah, that's my involvement at the moment. I try and do as much as I can in, in sport, but my main you know, focus is my academic work, but but sport will always have a really big part of my heart because, you know, I've had so much out of it myself that I, I want to make sure that there are opportunities for everybody to play and to reach their potential. So as long as that isn't the case, as long as there isn't the same level playing field for all girls and, you know, disabled children and uh, ethnic 
ethnically diverse communities to engage with the game. I, I feel it's incumbent on all of us to really kind of contribute to improving the game as well. So I'll carry on doing that too. Was there ever a consideration? I know you you wanted to concentrate on your academic career in in some aspects, but was there ever a, a moment or a time where you thought maybe I can give football management a go? Was that ever an option for you? No, not for me, uh, to be honest, Trace. It's not. I mean, I wasn't a coach to start off with. You know, I never went down the coaching route when I finished playing, mainly because I thought that would have been just continuing the same commitment of you know going out and coaching a team on a weekend and training and so on that I that I had for playing and I couldn't manage that with my academic career so I had to be realistic which is partly why I got involved in the governance of sport because I kind of enjoyed influencing the development I like strategic things you know I like somebody saying to me how do we get to a position where more girls play football and I like thinking through that process so for me it was never about management you know it was much more about being involved in the decision making of the sport and and I'm glad I did take that route because I think that's probably where my skills best fit. You know, I don't think I would have made a great manager, even if I'd been a coach, you know. So I think you've got to, you know, try and fit your own skills to, to the uh, projects ahead. Uh, do you know what? Because uh, at the moment I'm wearing a Barrytown top on. Yeah, um, I can see that. Yeah. A classic one. Um, I just really wanted to know something, you know, because you're part of the, the FAW and um, I and you say you, you tend to strategize what could be done better or whatever um it's like there's always this been this hefty debate going on with um the Cymru premier at this moment where uh, a lot of people question the 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 split after uh, the new years where um there's a phase one there's phase two uh, the amount of teams that are that are in the welsh league the, the Cymru premier that is and a lot of people say um some half of people saying it's on the rise because you know the likes yeah. of the likes of Connors Key, Baller, maybe Barry, are uh, trying to bring that um, uh, fire back in what it used to be back in the days. But then there's some that uh, saying, "Oh, it's not. It's going a different way because of the, the the way it's structured." Do you think at this moment that the Camry Premier is taking steps forward, or do you think it's it's still in the process of th- there needs to be more work here and there? I definitely think it's taken steps forward. And I think the, the progress that the league has made is, is really strong. I think both in the uh, men's game and, and the restructuring of the women's game. Um, I know that's been controversial, but the, the goals and the strategy for doing this are absolutely right. We need to create a stronger league. Um, and this will take time. And actually, what people might have missed is that this is about an investment in the women's game as well, You know, to ensure that we have more competitive opportunities for players to play at the top level regularly so that they can then develop themselves and hopefully in the future be selected for Wales, Wales squads. But no, I've seen a lot of Cymru Prem games, you know, and I, I think the standard is much higher than it was, you know, even four or five years ago. I mean, my hometown team, Penabont, you know, if you look at where they've come from and where they're going and the standard of, of play there, it's excellent to see. But, you know, we, we know we've got more work to do on all of these fronts and that's one of the reasons why, you know, the FAW um, is is so ambitious about the domestic game as well as the international game, because it, it's really important that we get the foundations of the game right to every level, whether that's just children playing grassroots. And by the way, I've got to go in a minute because I've got to take my daughter to uh, play football at quarter to six down with Cardiff City ladies. <laughs> but, you know, we've got to get we've got to get the grassroots of the game right. We've got to get the 
pathway for, for girls and boys, right? So we don't lose kids along the way. We've got to get the coaching right. We've got to get a facility structure. Then we've got to look at the leagues and we've got to look at the international team. So there's a heck of a lot of work to be done. But I think if we're all unified in the objective of getting stronger and getting better, we can do it. But we're going to have to work damn hard because, you know, we, we don't have massive resources like some countries do. But I think, you know, we can take spirit. We can take heart from the kind of spirit and energy of, of countries like Denmark, you know, who are obviously in the semifinals of the Euros. Countries like Iceland, who did well in the Euros like we did in 2016. Countries like Croatia. I mean, Croatia's only got a population of, what is it, four and a half million. And yet, historically, they've always been a, a great football nation. So we've got to be braver and more aspirational about what we want to do. And then I think, you know, I think there's no reason why Wales women and men can't be in the next two World Cups. Well, uh, thank you so much for coming on the Jaguars Voice podcast. I, I really do appreciate you uh, finding the time to just to talk about football, whether it's 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 just in general or politically. It's really fun to sit down and talk about football. So I really do appreciate yes. it. My pleasure, Reese. I really enjoyed it. And good luck with the podcast. <laughs> thank you very much.